Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 124 of Smart Enough to Know Better. It's a podcast of science. Comedy. And ignorance. I'm Greg Wah. And I'm Dan Beeston. And in this episode of Smart Enough to Know Better, I'll be sleeping with the fishes. And I'll be telling you how to make a crust. Also, sad dogs. Interesting. (laughs) Screw those guys. But first up, and this week on science... Dan, is anything exciting happened to you this week in science? Yes. Ooh. Yes, I have merged my twin passions of alcoholism and fretting yes. about a dystopian future. I <laughs> have started to brew my own beer. Oh, no. It's chemistry oh, like crazy. Oh, all over the place. Yeah, it's real easy. You just open up a can of stuff and then pour it all in and mix it all up and then realise that you've forgotten to sterilise stuff and then go, ah, it's going to be fine. It's a it's a poison anyway. It's a yeast. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> the yeast will save me. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what they do, isn't it? So, so back in the day before people had cat, like a packet of stuff they just open and throw in and make it all work, what did they do? Well, they got a big sack full of grains and they boiled the crap out of it like a tea. And then mm. that was the, the taste. And then they poured in some sugar and then yep. they put the yeast in. I don't know how they got the yeast, though. I'm that's, looking that's into that. That's, that's what I'm asking. Where did the yeast come from originally? Because the, the, using... the yeast is a, a type of microscopic fungus. So yeah. it would blow in and land on, like, water or something and it would right. grow somewhere and then mm-hmm. they would scoop it off and then they would give it lots of sugar to feed it up and make lots yeah. more of the stuff. But I don't understand how it gets from that globby mass into the powder that you put into pizza or beer. Yeah, desiccated. Now, the question is, I've I've seen fermented fruits, and I've seen large animals like elephants get hammered on fermented fruits. Yeah, where? 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 If it can get an elephant drunk, I'm interested. Well, that's Africa. Africa has the elephants. That's where I've seen them. I'm booking a flight. (laughs) <laughs> so you can actually, and they, they get quite hammered, and they quite enjoy the experience too. Like they go out of their way looking for fermented apples because they enjoy what it does to them, like humans do. But that doesn't use yeast; that's just fermentation. But that is that that must have yeast in it. Then I'm getting confused now. We're such a great science podcast. We know so much stuff about things we're talking hmm. about. That's interesting because <laughs> there's a lot of yeast that naturally occurring in the environment. So maybe it's really trace amounts. But when you sort of package it all up together and dump it in with the sugars, because the sugars in yep. the fruit fermenting i guess you just sort of hotwire it so it gets real alcoholic yeah the definition technically correct the best sort of correct fermentation of food processing is the process of converting carbohydrates to alcohol or organic acids using microorganisms yeasts or bacteria under anaerobic conditions there we go so basically it's going to happen all by itself then if bacteria can do it then the fruits are just going to quietly not not by themselves, but as in you don't have to do anything. You just leave them out, and they start to ferment. So if you're a happy elephant, you can just eat it, and you're like, hooray. So I'm guessing humans just, as you said, scraped off the bits and pieces of bacteria and yeast to start the process when they wanted to start it, yeah. instead of waiting waiting for nature to run its horrific course. Hey, can you just double-check that your computer's using the right mic there? Let me just check. All right, we've rescued Gregoire from the bucket that he was broadcasting from. Right. That's true. I'm being let out for the sunshine. It burns my skin. <laughs> now, an interesting thing about this beer that I was brewing is that... You can drink it get drunk. The Well, that is the, the most interesting part, but I haven't got to that point yet. 
I've, uh, I've tasted it. I've tasted it after the um, the first fermentation stage, and it tastes like. Have you you know at the supermarket you regret? can terrible you, regret. Well, yeah. You know at the supermarket you can get the non-alcoholic beer? I've never tasted it. No, I've never of course not. Of it. Very few people have. I quite like it. See, just to for our listeners, you drink beer because you enjoy the taste of beer. Yeah. That's And, and alcohol. And, and, and you, But you actually taste that You enjoy the taste. I have only ever drunk alcohol really for the effect of the alcohol. I don't drink So who's really alcohol. got the problem, Greg? Who's really got the problem? Well, well, as in, yeah, my problem is I only drink it once every six. I only drink it like once every six months, and it, you know, it's not, it's not a. I find it really weird when people say, "Oh, I'm going to go home tonight and have a quiet beers on the couch." I just sit there and I just, I find that crazy. I just go, "Why? It's it, it tastes horrific." Like, anyway, but that's that's just my thing. I, What's I've never half of three hundred and sixty-five? Sorry, one hundred and fifty, one hundred and eighty-two and a half. So I drink one hundred and eighty-two and a half every six months. Jesus, really? Um, all right, so look, this this isn't a therapy podcast. This is about the science of of, 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 of my problems. <laughs> um, so it's quite hot here in Queensland, and mm. so the yeast needs to sit, or the brew needs to sit at. Oh, look at you and your and your brewing words. The brew, well, the, the wort, it's called. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. It's perfect temperature for this particular strain is 25 degrees. Now, 25 degrees is quite cool in the middle of summer in Queensland. Yeah. And so I needed to find a way to cool it down a bit. And so what I did is I got a T-shirt and soaked it in water and put it over the thing and then hit it with a fan. And that actually, through evaporation, takes away a whole bunch of the heat. And it drops it down yeah. a bunch of uh, degrees yeah. and worked really That's well. Good. But I didn't want to keep having to wet the T-shirt. And so you can have an air conditioner just running at 25 degrees all the time and just have a perfectly controlled environment for, for beer. Well, that would be perfect, yes, but that's also like quite expensive. But yes, but you're, you're the or... man who has, a, has a, a weird bath that cooks meat. So, you know, I'm just saying if anyone's going to have a weird room for making beer, it's going to be you. I, I mean, have it's, already it's... looked into the do-it-yourself kits for getting a an old bar fridge and <laughs> putting the whole brew in there and then it's sort of cutting off if it goes below <laughs> 24 is it degrees. Just, is it basically a sous vide for the air? That's really what it is, isn't it? It just keeps the air at constant temperature. Uh, well, yes, except that sous vide, it gets misused a bit because sous vide means without or under vacuum. Oh, okay, right. So uh, it's the vacuum yeah, cooking. Yeah. So it, it'd know. be very difficult to have a vacuum and then use convection to cool things down. Also, vacuum the pos- yeast needs to be able to breathe. Uh, it wants to take yeast. the oxygen and the sugar uh, and turn it into carbon dioxide. Right, right, okay. Are you are you destroying the environment? Is that what you're doing? Are you, Always. Are you responsible? I'm a human. Are you, respons- <laughs> are you responsible for global warming now? Is that what it is? Yes, but I've got a lovely cold one for when it gets too warm. Crack, sure if it works crack open a cold one. So it's a zero-sum thing. It's, it's fine. It's yes, fine. Yes. It's fine. Okay, good. All right, we're moving on. We'll put that to the walk of shame, shall we? But I put the, the T-shirt and the furnace, no, the big bucket that you do the brewing in, in a pan of water, and the water would wick up through the shirt, and then the fan would push away the heat. And so yep. I managed to keep it pretty much at the right temperature for the, what, six days that it needs to do its fermentation. Oh, and Excellent. then I left it for another week, just to be sure. And today I got to bottle it. Oh, very nice. Um, What's it taste now, like? Hey. Oh, yes, the Dan's taste. Old, That's right. We're in Dan's there. old familiar. Like, what, what, what's it? Well, I mean, once again, it's only the effect. I mean, I'm assuming it's like, I don't know, to quote Douglas Adams, smashing your brain out with a bricks uh, wrapped in lemon. But 
Well, I'm just wondering. I tasted it at the after the first fermentation thing, as I said before. Uh, it tastes like non-alcoholic beer, but flat and like someone's mixed mm. in a little bit of Vegemite. So, oh, so what you got to do is you've got to put a bit more sugar in the bottles, pour the fluid into the bottle, and then leave that for another couple of weeks. Pour the fluid. Mm. Yes. Yes. No, it's not beer yet. It's pre-beer. It's still pre-beer. Pre-beer. It's. But you what's need... the alcohol content at that point? Well, uh, you need to measure it. And so mm. what you do is you get like a hydrometer and you put the hydrometer in and when it starts, it's at a certain value and then a week later, it's changed to a different value because of what? There's more there's actual alcohol in there and not the water's evaporated away or been something like that. The sugars are denser than the alcohol. So the sugar oh, okay. has a certain density and so the yep. little hydrometer, it sits at a, per, a, a certain level. But as the fluid the pre-beer becomes more <laughs> alcoholic the alcohol is less dense and so the hydrometer drops further into it because the density isn't oh. pushing it back up yeah yeah yeah. okay yeah well it's gonna it's gonna try and find its own level and that level will now be lower because there's there's less dense liquid on top okay that's cool yeah. i like that science yeah the and then you gotta beer. do some maths though because it's like Ugh. it gives you a reading of like it starts at like a thousand and forty somethings and then it goes down to like a thousand and five somethings i don't know what they are mm, mm, but then mm, you've got to take the oh. difference which, which is like 35 and then like right. divide it by 7.38 and then add 0.5 for the sugar that you put into the second and you <laughs> and you do all this crazy maths and then it pops out and it's like oh it's basically 4x right it's uh, good yeah, so it's about seven alcohol five percent alcohol something like that 4.4 Oh, 4.4, okay. Is that, is that like a mid-strength beer? I'm not sure. Bitter is 4.4. 4. Oh, there you go. Trendy, okay. yeah. trendy wanker beers. Like, right. Like we, tend, we, like we have gone out and drunk together, mm. uh, tend to be a little bit more expensive and just fruitier. Oh, I, the fruitiness upsets me on a fundamental level. Micro distilleries went through a phase, maybe still are, where they just want to make everything taste like a fruit salad, and I do not understand it. I don't get it at all. It's not my thing. It's not my bag, baby. It's not my bag. Hmm. So what have you been up to this week in science? Well, I wanted to get a bit, bit serious for a moment. It's just something that oh, happened. What? <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. All right. No, no, it's, it was, I went, I've been to a couple of conferences, science communication and science conferences across Australia today. And I just wanted to bring up something which I've noticed amongst science communicators, scientists, and I think the general public as well. And that's the concept, and I'm not going to go specifically into it, but talking about the way the world appears to be in the media with America, a he who must not be named, and, you know, Brexit, and even in Australia. America's sort of stuff. not a real country. It's like Narnia or <laughs> Sweden. Right. Well, well, hopefully not, because when we both go there to see the eclipse in August, then it better be there. Otherwise, we're going to take a long, expensive flight to splash down. A flight? No, be... I'm just going to go through a wardrobe. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> I'm just going to get in a whale and, and 40 days later turn up somewhere. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I'm not talking specifically, but we all know what we're talking about here, what I'm talking about here, this concept of the post-truth world. And I've been thinking about it a lot, and... I really don't like it. I mean, and, and it's not much to like, but I don't even like the concept of it because I don't don't disagree. Do you know what I mean when I say post-truth? I've got a vague idea about it. I've been sort of yeah. watching the fake news. Yeah. And they've been <laughs> fake telling me what it fake means. Yeah, exactly right. There's a lot of people up in arms. And these are, pe- these are good science communicators and good scientists and people going, oh, that's it. We live in this post-truth reality. And, and you know, how can we possibly 
fight this and you know and and it's good that they're trying to just say what are we going to do about it but also i'm going to cut out on a limb here and say that i disagree with the concept that we are in a post-truth inverted commas world i don't think we are i think that was a a really interesting and catchy buzz line created by politicians and or certain media outlets to justify while why they're being dicks basically um <laughs> And and I think for some reason the science community and lots of other people and the general public have kind of glommed onto it, hook, line, and sinker, and to the point where it was like the word of the year, post-truth, word of the year last year. And I don't agree with it. I think that nothing has actually changed. And I'll just let that sink in for a moment because I know that Entropy your... has stopped? Oh, God, <laughs> no! As in, as in the world is very similar scientifically than it was before. I think that... Nothing has changed because the general population still has the same appreciation or lack of appreciation for science that it always had. All that's really happened is that the people who make decisions have now decided to actively say that some people who make decisions have actively decided to say they don't like science and don't like elitists and information elitists but really they're just justifying their ridiculous positions it's they've always been there we've always known these people i don't think the percentage has changed i don't think the the number of people who like science has dropped i don't think the, the number of people who dislike science and don't use it have have gone up we just hear about them now and i'm going to say that that's actually a good thing yes a good thing we know where they are now we know who they are. When someone's hiding in the dark and you don't know where they are, you can swing your bat around and hope you hit them, but you can't – you don't know if, if someone's there. You don't know if you can actually stop them. The moment someone puts a spotlight on themselves, you know where they are now and you can do something about it. So what I'm basing this on, why I'm mentioning it all, is we don't live in a post-truth society. We just live in a spotlighted society where people who are active – who are, A, ignorant, and I'm not, I don't mean it in a pejorative way. I mean they don't understand, so using it in that term, or people who are actively trying to get power by preying on the ignorant – we just know that they're there and nothing has changed. So don't be in despair. I call myself a filthy optimist. We still live in the best time to have ever been alive as a human being ever. Whether you're a woman, whether you're a homosexual person, bisexual, whether you're a trans person, I know you may not agree with it. Even if you're a cis white male, it is the best time to be alive. And yes, there are problems, political issues, and yes, it could get worse and you have to be vigilant about it. It's not actually bad yet. And the moment we throw our hands up in horror and despair and say, it's all over, that's it, we're screwed, is the moment that we are screwed. That's the moment that we, ca- we, we are stuffed, and I don't believe we are there yet. So don't give up. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep being interested in science. Keep supporting science podcasts, let's say. Support politicians who are pro-science. Get out there and be involved. Get connected to your political process. Get connected to your social groups around where you live. Make a difference in that way, even if it's just chatting to people around you about why certain things are wrong. And and don't start a fight. Just put the information out there. The best way of helping the world is by changing the minds of people who respect and like you. I'm, I'm getting a little bit over the whole, we'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan. So, yep, I don't do it. Stop it. Strong opinions there. What do you think? Give us a call on 3892257. (laughs) Now we're going to go to a song by Lionel Richie. (laughs) Fine. You know what? The governments of the world, they need a walk of shame. They really, really do. Just everyone come out and go, oh, drop the ball there. No, but but they kind of do, Dan, and it's called the media. We know the media's track record with understanding science. 
Yeah, yeah, but not all of them. You know what? We need to flower up that Google Scholar page. Because go- the Google page is nice and easy. Google Scholar, that's intimidating. There's just pages of stuff. I don't want to read stuff. I want to watch a YouTube video or listen Thanks, to a sorry. podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for my birthday present. No problem at all. You don't remember what that was, do you? No idea. It was my birthday, what, last year? Sometime. Oh, at some point one. last oh, the, year. The sleep with the fishes. I got a, I got yeah. a certificate. To have an extreme experience from Greg and some of our other mutual friends. And I just choose an extreme experience. Like uh, the flyer said, like gliding or parachuting. And I was like, fuck that. <laughs> no, I'll stay on the ground. Thank you very much. But I was like, oh, what should I do? Like a speed boat experience or race cars or something like that. Finally settled on diving with sharks. Nice. Now... My birthday is in the winter, so I'm not getting in the water in the winter. The hell with that. And that's when the sharks are really hungry too. So like, you don't want to, you don't want to go then. That's always bad. Yeah, yeah. I want them yeah. when they're all like lazy and fat and happy. Yeah, <laughs> wearing sombreros and drinking my ties. <laughs> I've never scuba dived before, so I got to okay. go into a sea life on the north coast. It used to be under Waterworld. And they deck you out in scuba gear, and they teach you how to sink to the bottom of the pool without drowning. Uh, which I did on my second go, so that was great. Very good. And it's super weird breathing with a metre and a half of water over your head. Have you ever yeah. done it? I'm not a big fan of snorkelling or scuba diving. I always find the the pressure on my chest quite oppressive. I find it quite – it quickly creates a, a sense of panic in me, which is really weird. No, so same go, thing with you, me and Facebook. <laughs> so when when I go in the water, because you, you, you go down a meter and it's, it's quite a bit of pressure on you at that point. You go down two meters and it's quite a bit of pressure. And then anything below that, I find it quite horrible that every, my body's being compressed by this incompressible liquid. So I'm the only thing that can be compressed. Mm. And, and I don't enjoy the sensation. So, yeah, I've done it. I'm not a big fan of it, I must admit. Mm. Well, they strapped me into the scuba gear and the scuba suit was so tight that I just felt like the, that pressure from the get-go, <laughs> even, even above the ground. But uh, they teach you how to dive in a little tank and you walk around. You don't swim. You don't have flippers. You just sort of... The tank and the weights amount to 40 extra kilos on you and you sink yep. down so your head's like a, over a metre under the water. And even then, it's really hard to walk around because you're just kind of floating. Yeah, right. You're much less... You're buoyant. You're buoyant. That's the one. Yes. But then you slip into the tank and there's all these like shovel-nosed sharks and wobbegongs and stingrays around. And then you get to see like the... The actual sharks, like the black tip reef sharks and such, it was it was super weird. I grew up being sort of fearful of sharks, but having a respect for them because my mm-hmm. my grandfather was a boater. But actually getting into the water and seeing like those those nightmares live out in the real world, <laughs> that was something else. It was mostly the scuba diving that I had to sort of stop myself from panicking about. The actual sharks, after like thirty seconds, is like oh. It's basically like being in a room full of cats. Yeah. Like cats that can fly, but cats. <laughs> right. Surely a shark could hurt you more than a, a cat could hurt you. I think uh, it's only small sharks. I don't know. Ask girl clumsy. <laughs> and like, I've seen some big cats too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. House cats, house cats, I guess. I, I guess it, the difference between being a room full of house cats and a room full of tigers. I mean, that, that's a subtly different thing. Yeah. Subtly different. Have you ever been to an aquarium and seen sharks? Yes, yes, I've seen seen sharks in my life, big uh, fish. What about a hammerhead? Uh, I've not seen one in real life, no. 
I saw a hammerhead down at SeaWorld, but it was only about 70 centimetres long. So okay. a little tiny thing, a couple yep. of feet. And I wondered about that and realised that I'd never seen a great white in captivity either. And there is a really interesting reason for that. They kill anyone who comes near them at any opportunity. Just murder <laughs> them. I've seen Sharknado. I know what they can do. They, they just fly out through yeah, a weather just, phenomenon. They just fly out of the water. Before we go on, we were, you were over here in Perth, uh, Western Australia, for Australia Day. And we went down to the beach, Cotslow Beach, um, with a few other people. And we were sort of hanging around there for Australia Day, or very Australian, looking at the Indian Ocean. Yeah, and I drank beer. Shark I drank beer. It's great. Well done. You did drink beer. Did you oh, swim in the yeah. sea? Did you swim in the sea? No, no. You didn't swim in the sea. No, swimming nah. in the sea is rubbish. Much more interested in a different liquid. Yeah, <laughs> one that one that's uh, less salty. I yeah, swam in the bottom of a bottle. That's good. Yeah, you're so happy with this. Uh, but, but they had shark. They had shark warnings there, and uh, a shark. The shark had come in, and I talked to a now. A, now a, for uh, the audience, like it wasn't just signs saying beware of sharks. An alarm went off. Oh no! So, oh yeah, sorry. And yes, people a, a audio bolted alarm, yeah. out of the water. Yeah, everyone in the yeah. water is like, oh, Jason. And also, I, I talked to a Perth lifesaver who I know. On the day, one of the guys had had this app, and they can say, oh, the shark got within so many hundred meters, 150 meters of the shore. And when I talked to the, the lifesaver about it, he said, oh, yeah, that some t- sharks are tagged with an RFID. And when they go past the buoy, they activate the RFID, and it pings saying, oh, this shark has now just turned up 150 meters from shore. That's how they know. So that's only the ones they've tagged. That's not the ones they haven't tagged. Yeah. Just pointing this out. So, you're like, oh, and that's pretty cool that this shark, supposedly if they're tagged of a certain size, it's probably a big animal sort of cruised on in and everyone jumped out of the water. And then later on, we, they all went back in and then the alarm went off again and everyone barreled on out again. Because people do get taken in Western Australia by sharks. Yeah. There's a big argument about culling them and not culling them, all sorts of exciting things. So yeah, it's good times, good times. Yeah. They had the big alarm, but we were discussing on the day, I reckon that when it hits like the, the 300 metres out, you should just you should just hear across the tannoy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then when it gets closer, when it gets the hits the, the two hundred, it goes. Just in the way. And then when it hits like a hundred meters from the beach, you just get that. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> that would be amazing. That wouldn't cause tension at all. I guess you want people to get out. You want, but you, you want, want to tension. Go, if people are in the water, you want them to be tense. No, no, and that's true. And, that's, and I guess it's, when you hear the first one, you're like, oh, I'm a little bit tense by that. I should probably leave. But And if you're being too stupid about it, suppose that they can't stop you going in the water. The, the lifesaver told me, if you go, no, stuff you. Oh, you hear that? Probably not. Sharks? No, thunder, big thunder. Uh, the, the Sharknado? Sharknado. It's a Sharknado. If you stay in the water, they can't legally get you out of the water. It's not It's not a legal thing. They're just like, you're an idiot, and you're going to get eaten by sharks. So I, I thought that was interesting. I thought maybe they'd, they'd have the power to remove you, but yeah. They've got their own punishment worked out there. <laughs> it's a self-punishing anyway, crime. So, but you were saying there's a reason why you don't see hammerhead sharks and great white sharks in aquariums. Yeah. Some sharks are buccal pumping, which means that they take the water into their mouth and they sort of squish it through their gills. And yep. so something like a wobbegong could just sit on the bottom of the ocean and just be like, bloop, bloop, and just breathing water. And yes. this is what a lot of sharks did uh, historically. Or before, <laughs> before historically. What's that one? Right. <laughs> in history, that's right. It was a very popular shark pastime to sit in the bottom of the ocean and breathe breathe water. I, yeah, so you mean like the, the ancestor of sharks or the, the, the beginning sharks, the first the first sorts of sharks. Yeah. 
Yeah, they would mm. do this buccal pumping, suck in some water, push it out through their gills. Now, there are a couple of sharks that evolve this thing called ram ventilation. Mm. So what happens, you get a great big shark, like a hammerhead or a great white, and it's swimming along, and it can it's cruising along at a decent speed, and it can open up its mouth, and a huge amount of water rushes into its mouth and goes over its gills. But it only has to use a little tiny bit of energy to keep swimming along. It's like when you're driving down the freeway and you're only putting a yeah. little bit more energy into your car. But that shark has to slow down. It's not getting enough oxygen-rich water into its mouth. And if it has oh. to turn, it's not getting en- It's got to use that energy to turn, and yeah. it's not getting enough energy. So if you stick a great white or a big hammerhead in a tank, it just can't get up to speed for long enough, and it chokes to death. It can't get enough oxygen right. into it. I have always wondered about it because people kind of say, oh, if a shark slows down, they die. But then I've seen Wobbuck go, whoa, sorry, big lightning strike. Um, the, uh, but I've, not, I've seen Wobbuck and you go, well, that shark's not moving. It's just sitting on the floor. Now I know why. So it's two different evolutionary devices. So some sharks do one and some sharks do the other. Yeah, so I'm guessing with that little tiny hammerhead, it was in a big enough pond and was small enough to be able to get the to get up to speed a fair bit. Could you hang on? Could could you therefore maybe could you maybe put them like in a wave tank and have the water rush past them? Uh, well, a wave tank probably wouldn't work, but uh, yes, you could try to put them in like a wind tunnel, but a water version. Yeah, for water, a water tunnel. Yeah, um, and just have the sharks sitting there going, "Well, I'm not going anywhere, but I can still breathe." Yeah, um, you could, but you would still want it to have a great big environment to, like, otherwise it's just sort of hanging in the same spot forever. But so, you could put little screens around the outside of it, so it's in like a virtual reality tank, and it thinks it's moving, but it's actually <laughs> just swimming into the current the whole time. So people are going to come go. to this aquarium, and they're going to look up and see this giant, beautiful, great white shark with a like a vive strapped to its head. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's, that's one of the scariest things I've heard since combat dolphins. But anyway, some this, aquariums this sharks connected to the internet. Some aquariums have tried to keep a great white shark. And they've kept uh, a medium-sized one in a specially designed tank that was really massive and did have some parts where it had active water. That, yeah. And that shark was okay, but it was just kind of sick for like six months, and so they had to let it yeah. go again. But, yeah. yeah, a shark, a great white shark put in a tank will last a couple of days, and then it just runs out of energy. It has no energy yeah. and oxygen. That's very sad. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just go in the ocean with them, get in a big cage, and when they come into the cage, be happy. that You can see a creature that no one else can see. Oh, yeah, for a few moments. A few moments, that's right. Da, 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 da. Name the continents. The continents? How many continents, how many continents do we have? Uh, seven. There's Jeff, seven. Simon, Maggie, Duke, Penelope, uh, Duke 2, and Antarctica. <laughs> I'm amazed you got Duke 2. Most people don't get Duke 2. It's the one that people forget. I always feel sorry for Duke um, 2. Okay, continents, continents. Okay. Yes. Well, there is uh, North America, South America, Africa, Europe, Asia, Australia, the island continent, Antarctica, and Atlantis. <laughs> well, except for the last one, you got it pretty much exactly right. So we are frequently taught there are seven continents, as, as you just named them there. So, But geologists say that actually that's not true. We don't see it that way at all. They, they, don't they see all it that touch. Way at all. They all touch. Like, but, and, and that's the thing. And, and this, this is the point I'll go into a bit later. But so it's actually about... 
There are six geological continents because Europe and Asia actually make the same God continent. says there are seven. Boom, <laughs> That's right. Geologists say one thing. But there are six ge- – um, geologists say that there are six six continents in the world. So, of course, we have to work out why geologists are just bucking the trend, of course. I assume and- – I assume that America was one continent until the Panama Canal went in, and now it's two. No, not really. But it should no. be. It should be. That's right. Well, well, technically, so what makes a continent? That's what we got to look at. So what, what criteria do we have? So the criteria for a continent is land that pokes up relatively high from the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. That's always good. A diversity oh, of the three... Atlantis is out then. Well, that's right. A diversity of the three types of rocks. So you have to have igneous rocks, which are spewed out by volcanoes, metamorphic rocks, which are altered by heat and pressure, and sedimentary rocks, which are made by erosion. Mm -hmm. You have to have a thicker, less dense section of crust compared to the surrounding ocean floor. So you have to have like basically a bit on top that's not not as dense as the crust, but is is basically bigger than the crust or than the oceanic crust. Mm -hmm. And finally, well-defined limits around a large enough area to be considered a continent rather than a microcontinent or continental fragment. So that one's a bit vague. Uh, you know, that, basically what they're saying, it has to be big. So it can't just be rubble and bits and pieces. Hmm. So like half of Canada. I, I guess so. It looks like I... someone dropped Canada and, it, and just shattered the top oh, east yes. corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's all the, all the icy bits and the fjords and the, and the other exciting parts of it, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Lots of cool stuff happening there. So... What, why I'm mentioning all of this is geologists think that they have, if not discovered, but defined a whole new continent. Oh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, know, you have no idea how to react to that, do you? You're like, <laughs> I don't, know, don't even know how to. Can you travel there by wardrobe? You can. I hope. Well, take, well, you could travel there. Hang on. You could travel there by giant eagle, if that helps. Are we going to Mordor? Does Mordor well, exist? Well, oh, wait. Hang on. Hang on. Yeah. Is it New Zealand? Uh, there. New it's, Zealand? It's Zealand, yeah. Zealandia. So they've just decided that some geologists have decided that New Zealand is actually part of a whole continent by itself. Called They're calling it Zealandia. So it's basically New Zealand and New Caledonia and that whole island chain are not, an, are not fragmented bits and pieces of other continents, but a continent to itself. So they've they've known about this for years. If Zealandia was put forward as an idea decades ago, but now that we're learning more and more about the crust, we're starting to say actually it's connected to all the other bits underneath. It's just a submerged continent. Most of it, like Atlantis, most of it is submerged. <laughs> but some parts of it's like, oh, but only about two percent, I think. Yeah, two percent sticks up above the surface in New Caledonia, the other island chains, and New Zealand itself. But this seems to be a whole new continent, which is I think kind of cool. So it's all joined together. It's one big block. It's sort of weirdly off to the side. It almost runs into the Australian plate, only separated by one trench that's about 25 kilometers wide, sort of between Australia and this, this underwater continent, and the Pacific plate as well. So it's sort of a plate stuck between two plates. Oh, okay. Like, to begin with, they thought that it was a continental fragment that broke off the Australian plate. So they thought Australian plate existed and one bit broke off and has been moving away and that became New Zealand. But now they're saying, no, this seems to have the same geological makeup as Gondwanaland, not the Australian plate. So they think this has been moving north as much as Australia has been moving north since the breakaway from Antarctica. Wow. And and so when the sea levels drop, we'll have a a great big continent out there. That's going to happen soon, right, isn't it? Have I misunderstood that news? 
if if there if there's a, a giant global cooling event, maybe yeah. But uh, yes, unfortunately, it seems to be no. We'll we'll probably lose more and more of it. I'm afraid. Sorry about that. Ah. But here's the interesting point. Here's the interesting point. The UN says that the country on the plate can actually claim the resources of that plate. So it works very well for Australia because it's called the Australasian plate or the Australian plate, and therefore we can claim everything that's on the Australian plate, even if it's out to sea. Okay. On the same plate. Now, New Zealand was always a fragment. Well, they said it was a fragment of something else. But now, if it's actually on the Zealandia plate, that means that it can claim undersea resources 25 kilometers off the coast of Australia. Oh, oh Turnbull's uh, yeah. going to be unhappy about that. Everyone will be very unhappy about that because there's lots of oil potentially out there. There's lots of different sort of resources, fishing resources, all sorts of crazy things. So I'm looking forward to the fight about that, where Australia ends and New Zealand starts based on the concept of Zealandia. So We'll see if people get angry and actually deny deny uh, Zealandia as an actual continent. The governments of the world wouldn't deny science. Well, no, never. No, we said that at the start. It's all working really well. I thought it was an interesting point, though, because people sort of say India is a, was, would also be considered a continent. Oh, by the way, Zealandia would be as big as as India. So if you're thinking about it's a big it's a big lump of wow. land just underwater. So it's quite big. And India is not considered a continent in itself. It would be. 20 million years ago... If it wasn't it trying been, to mount Asia like a horny schoolboy. It, it's crashed right into it. So India is not considered the continent. That's why it's called the subcontinent. But anyway, there you go. So well done, New Zealand, for not just being a, a quite a progressive nation where everyone, all the crazy apocalypse preppers want to buy land and move to for the end of the world. You're also now a continent. Yay! In our neighbourhood giving away more clues about where I live. In our neighbourhood, one of our neighbours... It, ha- it smells of Vegemite alcohol. That's, where, that's how you know where he lives. <laughs> if people from around the world are coming to Australia trying to find the bit that smells a bit like Vegemite, they, they might have a bit of a task ahead of them. <laughs> we have a family across the road who have a dog, but they go out during the day. And the dog gets sad. It sits there and it just mournfully howls. Oh. Like, oh. <laughs> oh. And it just it's heartbreaking if you care about animals, which I don't. But <laughs> normal people would be heartbroken by this behaviour. And oh, I, was good. Sitting, I was sitting there going, Oh, that that sounds like a really sad dog. Like that dog yep. sounds like a sad dog. And then I went, wait a second, I'm might be putting my own feelings onto that. That is a dog sound, but how do I know that that's a sad dog making a sad sound? I just yes. it just sounds like a sad human to yes. me. You're anthropomorphizing an animal, but it may be it could be sad. Dogs dogs can you know they're pretty complicated creatures. Yeah, but maybe they just worked out a way to make us feel bad. <laughs> well, there are a couple of ways you can make your dog howl. <laughs> yep. yep. Oh no. This is oh, the no. this is the list. <laughs> This is a list of body parts of the dog that you can step on to make it howl. No, you can you can sing or howl yourself, and sometimes a dog will join in with that. You may have seen videos yep. of that on the internet. Or play a musical instrument, like a wind instrument, that gives off a yes. sort of thing like a harmonica or a horn or something. Right. Uh, they can sometimes be encouraged to by sirens, like when oh, yeah, a yep, yep. police car goes by. And, or if it sees videos of other dogs howling. So it's right. very much a, okay. a com- all of these things are sort of communal things. So the dog is connecting with another 
howling sound and going, oh, I'm reacting to that. We, we should all be howling now. If your dog is digging stuff up and destroying stuff while you're not at home, they're yep. probably upset by loneliness. They're lonely, yep. they're bored, they're frustrated. But if they're howling, they're not necessarily upset. Where do dogs come from? Where do dogs come from? Other dogs. Other dogs. Other dogs. And where did they come from? Wolves. That's right. They're grey wolves. And so these wolves exist in really sparse areas and they hunt in packs. Mm-hmm. So you've got a whole bunch of dogs running around and like trying to find prey and then hunting, yep. working as a team to take the prey down and eat the prey. So they've got sort of a big unit of dogs. But some of these dogs have to go scouting. So if they need to find prey, they'll spread out really thin. And so you'll have dogs all by themselves ahead of the pack. But if the, the wolves all sit down, they go, oh, it's time for us all to bed down. They want to be together when they bed down. So what they do is they sit there and they howl. And that howl is a signal going, hey, this is home. This is home. Everyone else come back in because it's time oh. for home. So, oh, so they're calling. So are you saying your next door neighbor's dog is calling for the owners to come home? Pretty much. The dog is just sitting there just going, just in case you guys are, uh, are out there, like, this is home. Yeah. This is this is home. Yeah. This is home. Yeah. They'll hear me. I'm sure they You should come fine. here. Yeah, be yeah. with me. That's so cool. So we'll be, just come home. Yeah. Uh, that's very cool yeah it's weirdly connected to this i I read an article just quickly check then and it was talking about guilty looks on dogs like you know if you if you find a dog doing something and it looks really guilty yeah and people sort of say the dog looks guilty and you see pictures on the internet of dogs looking guilty and dog shaming being a thing you know like they put a little sign on the dog yeah yeah with the with the I, I ate all yeah, the biscuits or... Yeah, yeah that, that sort of stuff, yes. Now, so an animal psychologist has written an article saying, no, they're not, they're not feeling guilty at all. They're feeling scared. That's actually fear. So what looks like guilt to us, so the, the, the hang dog expression and looking under its eyes and hunching itself, isn't dog guilt, whether or not they can feel guilt or not, we're not too sure, but it's actually fear. Because when they did the research and actually looked at certain dogs and certain family dogs that were punished severely or punished at all compared to the ones who weren't punished, more often than not, the ones that were punished are the ones that looked guilty, not the ones who were guilty in inverted commas and the ones who weren't. So it's actually a response to feeling fear because they know you're going to hurt it. Ah. There you go. So um, and I stop guess the, hurting your dogs. The, yeah, don't do that. It's like it's like it's like beating your children. Like nowadays, we've kind of learnt now that smacking kids isn't the best thing to do. In fact, it's been shown to you don't actually need to belt children to train them. You can actually not hit someone and maybe train them. Same with the dog. You don't have to belt the dog. And I know there are listeners going, "I've never hit my dog." It still looks guilty. Well, there's something going on there. So maybe it is it is fear. Understand that the dog is feeling fear, not guilt and maybe it'll change how we we interact with animals except for dan he'll just keep kicking them that's all fine we understand that yeah yeah. i i know fear in a dog don't worry about (laughs) that i know that look you should probably give the dog some beer go over go over go over and give the dog a beer just just go hey man i'm home too let's have a beer together why i mean i know i know it's bad for the dog but is it that's my beer (laughs) is beer bad for dogs i don't know well it's a poison it's well, but you drink it all the time. Yeah, but it's not good for me. Like, <laughs> I shouldn't be feeding it to myself. I shouldn't be feeding it to a dog. <laughs> Pimp my time. Dan, 
Ben. We have placed you inside the time chamber, locked the door, and the countdown begins. You have one hour, or you had one hour to research when you were going and where you were going and work out a way not just to survive, but to thrive, to pimp your time. I'm not concerned. You are being sent to 1200 AD and the Tongan Empire. Ooh. Ooh. I always send you to nice places. It's pretty nice. I always send you to sort of tropical, lovely places. Well, you send me to tropical places, not necessarily nice places. Well, that's true. But, but these places have been pretty good. Yeah, that's true. You don't have, you don't have to, you, you keep sending me to the Middle East, I notice. You keep trying to get me killed in the Middle East, I'm pretty certain. That's it's your plan. It's the birthplace of science. You love that that's stuff. True. You'll be fine. I do, I do. Yeah, it's good. It's all fine. I did send you to Nazi Germany, I guess. So that's so, you know that's all. Yeah, but that that actually worked out pretty well for me. All right, so twelve hundred after Jesus, <laughs> I arrive on a beach. I look out to sea, expecting perhaps some rudimentary canoes. Instead, I see giant double canoes with vast triangular sails and a hundred men standing on twin decks. You're welcome. Sorry, I just I had to. Lovely, lovely. That <laughs> was you. not lost on me. That's very good, yes. This is the beginning of the Tongan Maritime Empire. Woo-hoo! The islands are covered with various chiefdoms, and they would all bring their tributes to Tui Tonga. I arrive, and my normal status in this situation of appealing light-skinned god creature does not cut the mustard. I'd like to point out, when Dan says appealing light-coloured god creature, he's not talking about travelling through time. He just assumes that everywhere he goes. He goes, look upon my pinky skin. I am a god in this place. Go, Get out of the pub, you idiot. It worked in the, it worked in the uh, Jamaican islands. Jamaican oh, islands? Oh, my God, that I'm talking about now, in 2017. Yes, I just turned up. <laughs> All right, at uh, Cancun. And everyone's like, ah, <laughs> look at this guy. <laughs> Uh, just after the harvest season, this place is rife with travellers. So people from Fiji, the Solomons, all of them looking different, lighter or darker, different features. I'm looked on as more of a curiosity. They're welcoming, but they're not awed. So right. yep. I'm already on the back foot. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. They're you... like, don't kill this guy. We won't kill him, but we're not going to worship him. Now, Fair enough. Tonga is good. I'm glad about Tonga. You've landed me in one of the few places in this area where there isn't a large risk of me being eaten. Good, good, good. So <laughs> there is a bit of cannibalism out on the islands. Right. But not Excellent. here on Tonga. Uh, in a couple of hundred years, there are going to be some political problems, but I'll be long gone by then. <laughs> okay. The tributes for the Tongan royals are sort of the stuff that you would expect. Uh, animals, food, beads, sort of trade wares. Mm-hmm. But the most prized possession, the one with a history that extends back thousands of years, is the Ta'ovala mat. The Ta'ovala mat is a mat made of hand-woven fibres and leaves. It can be made by different materials, uh, strips of panderas leaves, usually unpainted. And so you can have like this, this weaving of this sort of tan dried leaf pattern to create these lovely artistic mats or they paint them or have the black leaves and they have like a checkerboard pattern or all black. There are also strips of hibiscus bask fiber, which are similar to the Pandaris leaves, but uh, thinner and create a sort of a a more bendy mat. And these days there's also plastic, but we don't have access to that yet. No, 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 not yet. Are you going to make plastic? Is that what you're going to do? I did look into that and went, I'm not good enough. I can barely brew beer. This chemistry is beyond me. 
Now, these mats, this beautiful art form. It's Do they th- have beer? Hang on, did they have beer in Tonga? Could you have brewed beer for them? Could they want it smashed? Maybe, although most cultures had... I mean, this is 1200 AD. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Most yeah. cultures sorted out the alcohol thing pretty early <laughs> on. Even elephants have worked it out. That's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, I used to grow up on a street where during a certain time of year, these trees out the front would all bloom, these red berries... And mm. at the beginning of the season, the lorikeets would come in and go, oh, yum, delicious food. And towards the end of the season, all the berries were starting to ferment, and the lorikeets would be like, I don't fucking know what I'm doing! <laughs> and just running into windows like crazy and screaming at each other. <laughs> They're off their nut. Anyway, mats, mats, okay, sorry. These lovely mats. This beautiful art form is thousands of years old and is still practised today. It is a very important part of Tongan culture, history, and religion. And I am going to ruin it. <laughs> I'm going to invent right. a, a mechanical loom a hundred years early on the right. other side of the planet. None of this handcrafted <laughs> bullshit. Okay? I'm going to take over the market and replace the mats with cheap, shoddy, manufactured versions. Right. Now, to create a weave... So even with thread, but with these leaves, these thin leaves, what you have to do is you have to have a a bunch of vertical lines of the material you're using. So Mm -hmm. a bunch of vertical lines, and then you tie them off at the bottom, and then to make the weave, you've got to get another strip and feed it through those vertical lines and go under and over and under and over and under and over and under and over and under and over, and then pull it down to the bottom so it sort of jams in there. And then you get the second one and you go over and under and over and under and over and under. And it sort of makes this knotted thing. And you do that hundreds and hundreds of time. It takes hours and hours and hours. Or you can make a mechanical loom. Right. I like the idea of the rattling Dan. That's great. That's a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) The hand loom was invented in the sort of late in the 1200s or late in the 13th mm-hmm. century. So we're at the very beginning of that. So you're ahead of the game. Yep, ahead of the game. A loom isn't too tricky to do. Right. Like really? Once you understand okay. the concept, it's basically a. you need to line out all your vertical strips and every second one has got to be on attached to one thing and every other one has to be attached to sort of a big comb or a, uh, or a fork like a okay. multi-pronged fork so that every second one is on, the, is on a lower area and then every first one is above it. So there's a gap between them. Right. Okay. Then you get this, like, a, a simple mechanism, just a big post that slides between the top and bottom thing, the, the V that is made. If you yes, look at it from right. the side, it'll look like a V. You send that post through and then you attach the thread, whatever thread it is, or the leaf, on the other side, and you pull it back through the machine, oh, and then you fold so down. It's, so it's like that. Then it... Very unhelpful on a podcast, on an audio podcast, Greg, to yeah, do I'm these hand things, but you're trying yeah, to work so it, it out. It, yes, it makes a V, and then something comes up the V, and then and then it goes over the top, and then you pull the thing out. Yeah, so imagine you've got yeah. a comb, yeah, and then you push another comb through that comb, and then you feed the stuff through that foam comb and then pull the comb up again, feed yeah. it back. So you pull the ah. thread through and then drop it over. So instead of you going under and over and under and over and under and over, you do all the unders and overs in a single go. Right. And you're actually okay. putting the other thread through, just sl- sliding it straight through. So you use a foot pedal to push it down and it goes clunk, feed it back out, 
let the foot pedal bring it up again, feed it back through, down again, up again. So I've done two lines of threading in a second. This will revolutionize the mat making industry because I can make yeah. mats 10 times faster and I can sell them <laughs> for a pittance compared to the handmaids and I can destroy the industry. Just knock it right. off at the knees. How does that help you though? I'll show you. <laughs> I'm the only one who can provide mats in town now. Oh, because no one else can afford to compete yeah. with you. Yeah, no one oh. can afford to compete with you. So, using what I know about production lines, I'll get all the freshly out-of-work weavers, and I'll get them in to do the individual parts. Instead of needing to be an expert in, like, every little bit, they can focus on a single task and pump these shitty mats out, making me a mat baron. <laughs> The rules of Tui Tonga state that the leaders of Tonga were the descendants of the gods. Uh-huh. But you know what they say? He who has the mats makes the rules. <laughs> and that's how I pimped my time in Tonga. So you become a, you become a mat baron and make all the money. Are they actually lesser quality? Or they, cause just because you make them faster, are they actually worse than the hand-woven ones? Well, initially, probably, yes. I'm probably going to fuck it up. I mean, there are these giant combs going through leaves. It's probably going to yeah. snag a couple. But okay, as we yeah. get better, they're going to get better. Yeah, so if it just make them quality. And I guess you could also say uh, you could go to the, the king, if, it, if they have kings, their, their, their leaders, and say, well, what, what sort of pattern do you want on your mat? And they go, I want this pattern. And by the end of the day, you could have that pattern made for them instead of taking a week or two weeks. So you definitely sort of control it that way. Yeah, but I don't, I don't want to really help him. I want to sort of overthrow him. So I'll oh, probably right. sell between the other islands and stuff. And oh, oh, I see. Right. Okay. So this is actually not just becoming the Matt Baron. You actually do want to become the leader of Tonga. Uh, God King has a nice, uh, nice ring to it. <laughs> well, well done, Dan. I like that. Once, once again, you do like to base your ideas on haute couture, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, <laughs> but your mind seems to go, I know, I will take over with cloth fabrics and exciting weave wear. So well done you. It's, it's good to be consistent. Thank you very mine much. Seems to be, mine seems to be stealing things from Leonardo da Vinci, so that's all fine. <laughs> all right. Now for some revenge. Okay. You are going back a little bit more recently. Oh, yes. 1858 AD in Naples. Oh, okay. That is quite recent. Yeah. A little bit of Mediterranean stuff. That's very nice. Yeah, you'll enjoy that. Pastas, pizzas, it'll be good. Yeah, I look forward to going to Naples. The Walk of Shame, the most Woo! scientific part of the podcast where we acknowledge yeah, you... our mistakes like proper mistakes... grown-ups. That's right. <laughs> and the mistakes of everyone who's ever, ever been on. Sometimes <laughs> we gripe at our audience for sending ridiculous pedantic rubbish. Oh, you're going to enjoy this next one then. <laughs> I will say something before we start this. I've been, we've had an influx of listeners from different places, and so, and they're a bit more active on Twitter. So they sort of talk on Twitter or they talk on Facebook. And I've noticed a lot of people writing the comment technically correct, the best sort of correct, <laughs> and then just putting SE2KB. It's not even about us, but we get mentioned because of it. Now, we didn't come up yeah. with that, but I'm glad that's the what we're getting. The hell with you, known. Futurama. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Season one, episode nine. <laughs> Yeah, so but we're glad that's what we. That's the thing we're going to get known for for the rest of time. That's a pretty good thing to be known for. All right, Phil Koenig was listening, and he Hi, heard Phil. you. Hi, Phil. Hi, uh, Phil. He heard you mention the very popular song "Back in the USSR," very popular oh, yes, Springsteen yes. track, apparently. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. You might want to tell the WA that that was written by the Beatles. Remember the most popular band that's ever existed on the planet, the Beatles? Yeah, I've heard of them. I've heard yeah, of them. Some they sort did of back in the USA. You were possibly, oh, there you go. You were possibly thinking of born in the USS, uh, the USSA. <laughs> you, well, at the moment, aren't they the same country? Ayo! Oh! Political commentary! Nice. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. So what do you got for me? Nothing. Brilliant. All right, <laughs> moving on then. <laughs> Keep kicking me in the scientific gonads. Hooray. Michael Barnes. Barnsey. <laughs> Long-time listener. Uh, Many-time writer. Now, he was listening to our episode about cavitation bubbles and teleportation. Oh, yes, yes. yes. And you mentioned teleporting whales. Oh, yes, 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 yes. That's right. Yes. yes. The um, Star Trek Four. Star Trek the Four. Voyage home. Yes, indeed. You remember all that stuff, but you referred yes. to them as... Two full adult blue whales. Yes, aren't they? However, the whales collected from 20th century Urch were humpback whales. Oh, Named were they George really? and Gracie. Like, <laughs> the, how hard would it be to have a blue, two blue whales in a tank? They're, there's only like 900 of them left on the planet, and they're huge and they're hard to find. Yeah, but the blue blue whales are their numbers are, are, are definitely. This is, this is back in the 80s, I guess. But yeah, their numbers are stabilizing. In fact, I think they're back to their pre-hunting numbers. Am I right there? Oh, that's a walk of shame and a walk of shame. There. I think but that yes. might be humpback whales. Blue might whales, be humpback whales. Uh, uh, as of a couple okay. of years ago, it's still super hard to get. Oh, okay. Well, there yeah. you go. But yeah, worth no, you're it. Right, Dad. You're oh, right, they're Dad. delicious. The mistake I made then was was not realizing how hard it would be to magically teleport two blue whales into a spaceship from the future compared to magically teleporting two humpback whales into a spaceship from the future. I realize my mistake in logic now. I think that, that no, you see, you're being facetious there, but <laughs> let's remember the context of this conversation. The difference between two blue whale-sized holes in the ocean and a, yes. becoming a cavitation bubble and to humpback whales is significantly distant that's the difference between wiping out half of san francisco and half of california i, I disagree i would have, have to get in contact with dr denale again but i disagree because yes blue whales are bigger than humpback whales but we're not they didn't transport the whales they transported the whales and a volume of water the size of the tank now, that tank would have to be bigger if it was blue whales, but not considerably bigger than the blue whales. Those humpbacks were inside the tank, swimming around the tank. So, yes, you're right. It would be a bigger tank, but not the difference between the size of a humpback whale and a blue whale percentage-wise. Or, or by, you know, I don't think it would be three or four times bigger tank. Uh, now you know we need to talk here? to a tank expert. Yeah, now, 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 fine, Michael Barnes has got me, absolutely humpback whales, but I'm not, I still think it would destroy all of San Francisco. That's my take on it. But I, I'll take that, yes. And also, can I just say that these whales are very intelligent creatures. We've shown in dolphins that they have their own names, like dolphins when they speak, or bottlenose dolphins anyway, they actually put a sound cue at the start, which people, uh, when they're talking to other dolphins, so, which is like a dolphin name, so they actually name each other or they have their own name. I don't know if whales are the same thing, but I'm going to say the cetacean, so there's a possibility. So was it George and Mildred? Was that what they're called? That were the name, names of the... the um... George and Gracie. George and Gracie. George and Mildred no, from Men About the House. Oh, the old yeah, couple from upstairs. Now, if they'd been teleported into a tank, San Francisco would be spared the total destruction. So that's fair enough. But they're much smaller than both whales. But I think that maybe we shouldn't be using the slave names of whales. We should probably use their real names. Otherwise, we're just perpetuating a cycle of violence. You are getting political today, aren't you? <laughs> 
We had a listener by the name of Abby Beckett. You pondered. We were dis- oh. we were just we were discussing how the Chinese uh, never really discovered lenses because they were so excited about their porcelain and not about yes, their glass ceramics. products. Yes, yes. And you and you wondered what is it that we are missing that. Like, so what obvious thing are we missing that we'll realise in 800 years that we could have really mm. progressed because of it? And mm-hmm. Abby had a thought about that and said, uh, maybe it's intellectual property. Maybe it's the patents and the fact that we, we're inventing great stuff, but no one can share this information and spread yeah. it around. Yes. I, I'm, so I do remember that email when it came through. Yes, that was a really good point. And I think that requires a whole, almost a whole episode on intellectual property all by itself. Because there's a lot of thought process there yeah. about what it was designed originally to do and what it does today. And whether it's holding think, us back or helping us go. Yeah, that's right. And I think I mean, we could discuss that at another time, but I think there is problems with the intellectual property, and, and that email really kind of like, yeah, hit on it quite well. Yeah. But that's just my uneducated opinion about it. I'm not, a, I'm not an IP man, unlike Donnie Yen. You've not seen IP man? Ip man? Okay, fair enough. I hope, it's a that, film. I hope the target demographic for that joke is enjoying it. <laughs> uh, another listener, Danielle. Yes, yes. Hello, is, Danielle. Danielle is listening through the whole set. Good lord, Danielle! <laughs> uh, in episode fifty-five, which was yes, yes. I don't know four years ago. Wow! Yes, uh, back in the good days of the early podcast. <laughs> yeah. In that episode, I mentioned that I like to savor the taste of food, so I eat the food, and I don't want to have to brush my teeth immediately because I like to have that taste of food in my mouth. And you said, "No, nah, as soon as I eat, I want to brush it, get rid of it, nice clean mouth." Danielle is a dental hygienist, and as far as her studies go, it is not recommended to brush right after eating, as the acids in the food weaken your enamel, so you should wait 30 minutes, so I can savour my food away. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You just said the acids in the food weaken the enamel. Yeah, so, so that's a bad thing, isn't it? The acids will weaken the enamel uh, when they're on it, make it, meaning that the enamel will get stripped away when you brush. So if you oh right oh I see so you want to you, you want to let the acid stay on your teeth you, and then the and acid will I imagine dilute with saliva and yeah. uh, progressively over uh, I guess thirty minutes and then you can brush your teeth and your the oh. aggressive brushing doesn't damage the enamel as much because you're not brushing acid into your teeth. I see. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Oh, that's, yeah. that's a good idea. Now, Danielle is a Canadian. Ugh. And she has a message for you in regards to how you feel about Canadians. Ugh. Yeah, I bet she does. Yeah. Uh, she apologizes for how you feel. <laughs> Bloody Canadians making me feel bad about every... Ugh. You also don't like Canadians. Well, it's not just me, is it? Hang on. Doesn't, is the whole podcast anti-Canadian? Yeah, yeah, anti- yeah, yeah, but I, somehow I managed to avoid the blast here. Oh, damn it. Very <laughs> definitely targeted you. I'm the terrible, polite blast from, from two nice Canadians. Oh, <laughs> okay, uh, now there's one more, but you'll be pleased to know yes. that I am the victim here. No, oh, the perpetrator. I'm the perpetrator. I'm the villain. <laughs> Right. So you were discussing a couple of podcasts ago the amount of stuff that human have made, built, and disposed oh, yes. of on planet Earth. Yes. And you uh, told me that it was like 50 kilograms per cubic meter. Yes. Now, I'd heard that human beings themselves take up a cube one kilometer by one kilometer by one kilometer. A one kilometer we cube. Discussed, we discussed that on the, on, the, on the podcast before, yes. Yes. Now, I said that the debris of all those humans would probably take up like 50 times as much space, which would be a cube 50K by 50K by 50K. No. That's not how volume no, no. works. That's not how volume You, you squared it, yeah, of course. That, that, that's yeah. 50 times 
one no. k cube. That's a hundred and twenty-five thousand cubic kilometers. <laughs> like that's yeah. a big cube. <laughs> now, initially, I thought that I had guessed quite like obscenely low, yeah. but I, I wanted to check my maths. So we get my 125,000 cubic kilometer cube and we spread it across the globe. The planet Earth has 510 million square kilometers of space. Okay, so what that is, is 125 million million meters cubed to fit into a space 510 million million meters squared. So 0.45 meters cubed per square meter of space. Or to visualize that... uh, Debris everywhere. Because big numbers are sexy. Yeah. To visualise that, debris everywhere, 24 and a half centimetres deep, which is Uh. about nine and a half inches if your measuring system is from hundreds of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Backwards countries. Yeah, Yeah. backwards countries. 24 and a half centimetres deep. Uh, So it's 245 million cubic millimetres, which is 245 litres. So that's the volume. In order to get 50 kilos... That means that I need to find a substance that's 204 grams per litre. Right. Now, aerogel is the lightest thing we've got that's not a gas. Yes. Okay. So it's 0.0015 kilograms per litre. 1.5. So too, too light. Too light. Okay. Gravel is about 2 kilos a litre. Too heavy. Gold uh-huh. is about 19 kilograms a litre. Even mm-hmm. heavier. Uh, osmium twice as dense as lead, it's 22.6 kilograms per litre. It would be also too heavy. I've overshot here. Dense, dense. Yeah, dense. Yeah, yeah, dense. Dense, not heavy. Dense, not heavy. Okay. Now, household rubbish is 481 (laughs) grams per litre on average. So it's more than double, but we're, we're closing in. So I can't just cover the whole planet in household rubbish and be right. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm. closest one I could get to 204 grams per litre is 208 grams per litre, and that's charcoal. So Ooh. for me to be right, <laughs> all I need to do is incinerate everything man has ever created. <laughs> anything organic. Yeah. I see. Right. Anything anything Chon-related. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I'll be right back. <laughs> all right. That has been the walk of shame. If you Whoa, hear... You. Hey. That was great. I really love that. It's so nice to have new people going back and checking out checking out what we've done wrong in the past. I love it. Thank you. Oh, isn't that I great? People moving through the podcast. It's been so good. We've had such a lovely influx of excited people who have been really lovely to us. So mm. we love hearing from you. If you hear that Greg has made a mistake, please do email me, dan at smartenough.org. And when Dan invariably screws up, send it to greg at smartenough.org. <laughs> I have a song for the podcast. We haven't done this for a very long time, mainly because to find something interesting that's not just sort of – also from not an artist we've used before, which we you know, started doing the same ones over and over. It became difficult, so we stopped also, doing it. Also, I hated every- them all. I hated, hated you them. Ha- you hate music. You I had to music, heal. I had to heal after the last one. <laughs> Bloody archipelago was- lists of chemicals and oh, nonsense. Them, there, 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 was, there was one of those recently that was so good, and I so wanted to use it, but I knew that you'd cry, so I didn't. So I, we're friends. You should, you should understand that. Oh, so, anyway. you, so you've got a good one this time. You've got one I, that I'm I really going to so enjoy. I hope, I hope an actual catchy song. So during the – as some listeners who may know, Dan and I were involved in a comedy play called Speed the Movie the Play at the Perth Fringe Festival, and it was award-nominated, did very well. 
and uh, lots of sold out shows. And so you know, can't come and see it. But anytime you anytime you hear that we are putting a show on, come see it because they're normally pretty good. If I do say so myself. We had a couple of and listeners come along and see it too. We did actually. You're so cool. It was turned around at one point, and there was a listener wearing a Smart Enough to Know Better T-shirt. That was Alana. Just, that was Alana. It was amazing. Was it, was, it was that moment of. Okay, well, our worlds are combining now. And, of course, we had um, Tal, who was a, was a person we've interviewed on the podcast as well. So that was really great. But anyway, I got to go to other shows here in Perth afterwards, and I happened to go and see this band. One of the first songs they did was a pop song. It was really poppy and exciting, and it was scientifically correct. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. That's not the first metric, is it? Oh, no. no, no. no. <laughs> oh no! So I, think, I think we should play it.
such an enjoyable, scientifically accurate song since Busted's been to the year 3000. <laughs> look, I, look, there's not aliens dancing on a planet, but when I, I was sitting there and they start off by going about Kepler-22b, and I was like, oh, yeah, fair enough. That's, that's one of the planets that's been discovered by the Tepler telescope. But they said 600 light years from home. And I was like, they're right. That's actually, <laughs> that's actually correct. Well done, D. Rotten Puncta. Now, for those who don't know, D. Rotten Puncta is a... Is uh, Otto and Astrid? They're they're um I, I guess a parody band. Would you would you say that basically the world's greatest band? D Rotten Punk to stand to the Red Dots, but of course it's um you know D Die Rotten Punk. And I'm trying to exp- I realize I'm explaining the joke, which I probably shouldn't. So if you get a chance to see them in Australia, and they go to America, and they go to Europe as well, and they travel around, and they're two in inverted common Germans, inverted commas Germans who are trying to take over the world of music, and they they're worth listening to. They make me laugh a lot. So yeah, go. good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Very fun. Did you to hate it? To. No, I loved it. It was good. Oh, I might yay. even add it to my collection. Oh my goodness! Yeah. One of their songs is actually really good. Like some of them are just silly, but some of them are really good songs. I feel that the wait has been worthwhile that we can get music back in the podcast when we get some good ones. <laughs> so if, if listeners, you have any good science-based songs that Dan might like, send them to me, and I will play them on the podcast. Maybe. Yeah. You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. And Greg at smartenough.org. You can follow us on Twitter at SE2KB. And keep sending us stuff on Twitter, guys, because we do appreciate it. And uh, we'd love to hear from you, especially newer listeners. Get in contact. We write back quite often because we enjoy talking to people. But also Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. We're also there. We also need some stuff from you guys. Because otherwise, we're just talking to each other. But if you, again, if you spot a mistake we've made, remember to post it into us so that we can post it. Remember to put it on a letter. Type it up on your typewriter. Postcard. Postcard from Niagara Falls. You go over in a barrel. And we'll make sure we play it. And send it into us so that we can uh, use it in the Walk of Shame. Also, this is something that has sort of dropped off the radar, but I want to know that people have the opportunity to send in for it. We have created a most excellent order. The most excellent order of smart oh, yes. enough, no better. And you could oh, yes. be a knight in the most excellent order of smart enough, no better. We need to yes. hear your stories about how you saved a human life through an act of heroism using science. You become part of the knight's spatula. You you will become a knight's. You no. You will you will become a knight's <laughs> bachelor, and you'll receive a knight's spatula. No, no, you, you'll become a knight's bachelor. We're not, we're not calling a knight's bachelor. We're but calling look, a knight's bachelor. I, I went back and listened to the episode and stuff, and we, you will become a knight's bachelor, but you'll receive right. a knight spatula. This oh, is this fine. is this was well. Look, if you want to go off off book, that's fine. You know? I think, look, it's 2017. We're in a post-truth society. I think we can just change it out however we like. <laughs> 
now, there is a show coming up in Australia. So if you're listening in Australia, I want you to be on the lookout for Cosmic Shambles. Oh, yes. Now, we interviewed Dr. Helen Zersky last week or last episode and a little while ago we interviewed Robin Entz and there'll be a bunch of others in fact you know what we've got a little bit of advertising that we can play I can they can explain themselves so I'll just play that now Hello, I'm Robin Ince, co-presenter of The Infinite Monkey Cage, and I'm bringing a new show to Australia with my friend Josie Long and many, many guests. Cosmic Shambles Live is coming to Australia with science, comedy and music, all in one gala night that will make you think and laugh, or laugh and think. The order will just depend on the night. So, come and see Josie Long and stars of science such as Dr Carl, Professor Fiona Wood and many more surprises on the night. Click. That's me saying click. Is it actually playing, or do I just have to? No, I'll, I'll, I'll sort that out. I'll do oh, that. Well, that's, that's, do that in magical. post. You know. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so why are we waiting on... There's no reason to wait because no. we're not waiting for it to play. So get along to the Cosmic Shambles and uh, listen to the details that you just heard. I won't repeat them again because, oh, you don't want doubling up. That'd be ridiculous. But I would say they're in major capital cities around Australia, Perth, Melbourne, Brisbane. They're not in Brisbane. Are they? No, they're not coming here. Oh, boo! But they're they're pretty much everywhere else. Yes. Well, and I can say that if you come and see the one in Perth, that one of the scientists is a scientist from ICRA. His name is Toby, and he did very well in the FameLab talks. So he's very good. He talks about dark matter. So every city will have a scientist from that city talking about science as well as the Cosmic Shambles people, which Mm. is kind of cool. Also, if the ad you just listened to did say that they went to Brisbane, listen to them, not me. (laughs) (laughs) And as we always like to say... We're going to need a bigger boat. Oh, because of the sharks. Yeah, no. I love it. I love it. of science comedy and ignorance and uh, i am greg blah blah blah, blah. i am greg yeah. Wah. don't you step over me young man it's the delay I'll, it's the delay I'll between here and perth kilometers and spank you i just need to be able to predict you by like an eighth of a second i think it's the world needs to learn that i've never been able to predict you even that closely <laughs> That's true. You're a chaotic element. Um, people say after the, the weather, you, you can't predict more than about 10 days out. Me, it's an eighth of a second. God knows what I'll do. Uh, what did we get up to? It's a podcast of science. Comedy. And ignorance. Can you hear me? Do, 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 yep. Uh, yes, I can. You can hear me. Okay. I can't hear you, though, which is interesting. Oh, no. Um, but I say such beautiful things. Uh, all right, what's this thunder issue? Nah, I wouldn't worry about it. It's just some thunder. It's your just, computer. Just it's your it's all... precious RAM. I use it all the time in thunder. Never had a problem. It's only you and John Birmingham seem to have problems with it. <laughs> it's very strange that there are people out there like you. I know that Chris panics with, uh, with thunder and lightning too. I know that he jumps up at four in the morning and runs around shutting down computers and freaking out. Oh, really? I guess I'm just basically on probability, I suppose, where I'm like... You're denying electricity, man. You have to hit somewhere between the Transformer and this block of flats, which is pretty unlikely. We're not even the tallest thing around. There are trees higher than my buildings. But you've been here. You've been so saying you have actually lost things, and so has John Birmingham on a number of occasions, actually, which makes me think that his house is particularly susceptible. I think it's like three times since I've known him, he's like lost 
his entire computer or at least some components of it due to electricity. Yeah, so but could... I think his I think his house was built by the same people who built the building in Ghostbusters. Right. So. <laughs> oh, there we go. Am I back again? You uh, yes, there you are. I see you. Brilliant. Brilliant. Shaking that ass. Shaking that ass. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't shake my ass. It's uh, too dangerous. I'll uh, <laughs> cut someone. So I don't worry about me copying Eddie Izzard because I think I was doing it before I knew who Eddie Izzard was. So you like <laughs> him watched... because he reminds you of you. Um, it's narcissistic behavior. <laughs> Have you seen the video of the BBC guy being interrupted? Yes. Oh, my I, God. I feel sorry for him. Like, that man, is he feels awful. Oh, I just pretended he was a dog. Right. So that made it easier. But yeah, I mean the kids. Kids are awful. That's why you don't ever have kids. I mean, and I hope he beat that child afterwards. Like really beat it. Like just absolutely thrashed it. So it, it looks guilty, but it's actually fear. Is that well? Of course. That's I, I, it's, that's why I don't have children because I, I don't want to instill a sense of fear in a child. But no, at no, least it, not your own. That's <laughs> that's why I became a teacher. Uh, <laughs> it is funny. I just I felt sorry for him because he had this very much a. This is my professional life going down the pisser right here. So um, he knew he knew he'd go around, he'd go viral. He knew that he could see it in his eyes. He's like, oh, of all the things to be known about, this is the, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and also because he's the, the British. Oh no, the, it's all the, gone wrong. The embarrassment. Yes, the, the embarrassment. British embarrassment. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. And the mother, like, I, she didn't just walk in and grab it. She was trying to like be out of shot, so she was weirdly crawling on the floor. <laughs> Every every decision was wrong. Like everything, <laughs> like the kid was wrong, and the, I think the guy was fine. Like he just kind of went, oh well, and just waited. But the 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 mother or the wife or the carer, whoever that was, was just wrong. She should, should have just walked in and picked up the child and walked out. It was just this weird. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and be stealthy, but it's all going to be horribly wrong. It was the, it just the panic uh, combined with I'll solve the solution this way. And yeah. just her trying to stay out of frame when she's yes. quite obviously in frame from our point totally of view. In shock. It was yeah. just every moment of that was exceptional storytelling. And then you could hear the kid once the door closed. Yes. The kid was still losing its mind. Like the kid was like really upset that it couldn't like, go I'm in. I want to be on national telly. <laughs> you ruined my chances. I've yeah. got options about the South Korean <laughs> president as well. My voice will be heard!